So I might be a little bit biased, since, you know, new setup. This should be funny, by the way. You guys should be seeing this going live alongside TOS, which I recorded months and months ago, almost a year ago, under a completely different setup in a completely different location with a completely different camera. So this should be fun. I hope you guys like. haven't filled out the racks yet because of stuff that's related to the streaming side of the show. So forgive me for the barren shelves. I don't have any Star Trek models up yet either, and frankly, that's probably not going to happen during this week because i got recording to do, but anyways. So we've got Jeffrey Combs, uh, Christopher Shia, Gary Graham, and Susie Plaxon. We've also got a decent amount of ship shots, not too great, several action sequences, and a uh, the, the, the shuttle coming in crash landing sequence. If you're wondering what I'm po pointing out, I'm pointing out that there's a surprisingly large amount of money that went into this episode, and it shows. Now, this of course has nothing to do with anything other than an interesting commentary. One of the things I've talked about a lot lately is presentation. Um, presentation can mean so much. If you'll forgive me for sharing an analogy really quick here. I want you to imagine that you're watching a school play. Now, I want you to picture that this school play is brilliantly acted, somehow. Like, the, the kids just nail it. And whatever they're playing for, the, the actual writing of the play, is amazing. Now, you can enjoy that. Of course you can, because its core is good. It's something you're probably going to be talking about for a while. But at the same time, you're, whatever you're probably picturing in your head is probably making you go, Because eh. they've still got cardboard, and it's still on a stage with bad with no microphones, and bad lighting, and all of those things that add to the actual presentation of the work are terrible. This is one of the reasons I, I bang on about this thing. I, I am very big on core, and one of the reasons why I am is because so often the core is missing. This is actually one of those reasons I tend to hold up Star Trek as an ideal, is because despite everything, it tends to have good core. But it's always interesting when we see Star Trek, which has good presentation, too. And like as is not, a lot of the times when we have both, good presentation, good core, we tend to have great episodes. Now, I'm not saying that this is the best episode ever, of course, but actually this is in the running for one of my favorite Enterprise episodes so far. Also, of course, we have a script by Mr. Black, Chris Black, who does a decent job as always. He also did... Uh, Fallen Hero, which I rather enjoyed, Carbon Creek, which I enjoyed way more than I thought I would, and Singularity, which, again, I enjoyed more than I thought I would. So we've got some precedents here, is what I'm trying to say. Anywho, gosh, so we've got a little bit to unpack on this episode. Shran is there. He's like, hey, let's go ahead and talk with Archer. I demand to speak with Archer. How many of you have played 4X games, Space 4X specifically, where human is one of the races? How many of you have been like, what is, why is it that humans always have the diplomacy stat? I'm starting to think it's because of Star Trek. See, <laughs> this is the, the legitimacy though here. This is the interesting thing because humanity's big shtick, at least in Trek, is that they're the people who are willing to be in the middle, to be diplomats. Now, some people think diplomatic means a certain type of smarminess or a certain type of bending over backwards, doing whatever it can to please the other side. Early TNG, excuse me. But what we see here is that a lot of the times it's the willingness to just stick to their guns and to be able to 
demonstrate things like negotiable uh, standards or the ability to actually be trustworthy or whatever, which enables them to, you know, then have political capital, which they can then spend on one side or the other or both or more than one if it's more than one people involved in order to try to get them to sit at the table and be like, hey, can we figure this out? And that's exactly what happens in this episode, but I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a claimed planet. It's on the border between Vulcan and Andorian space. Okay. So before the episode continues, I'll write my notes here. Is it an excuse? Is it valuable? Or is it both? What's interesting is then uh, something happens, which I'll come back to in just a second. And T'Pol says, oh, it's a Class D moon, basically. Like, it's a dinky little thing. Which also means it should have low gravity, but let's not get into that right now. And, okay, so what's the value of it? Well, the Andorians were terraforming it to colonize it. Okay, that makes sense. I'm with it. I'm with it. So, in other words, it didn't have any value to the Andorians in the strictest sense of the word. It was simply Andorian space. This is an easy thing to understand if you own a home, because that's your home. Now imagine someone walks up to your house and says, hey, we're taking this house from you because it happens to be on the border of our house and, well, we don't trust you worth a damn. T'Pol's comparison is apt in its own way. Imagine if the Klingon set up a base on Pluto. This is, uh, God, there's so much to unpack here. Before I move any forwards, one of the things that I commented on extensively throughout Season 1 was how they were getting further and further away from Earth from Sector 001. I've noticed this a bit more in Season 2, and I'm kind of with it, that Season 2 is far more back in the home territories. This is right on the border between Andoria and uh, and Vulcan. And, even, and granted, they were pushing the engines, but still, they got there in three days. They're not that far out, is what I'm trying to say. And thinking back on it, I think that was the trend for a decent number of the Season 2 episodes. I kind of wish that had been reversed. Some of you, by the time this video goes live, over a year from when I'm recording it at this point, you will probably be aware of the Star Trek rewrite project. Literally tonight, Laura Loaded and I, and hopefully Jesse Jenner will be there as well, will be sitting down and discussing rewriting Enterprise uh, and in fact covering some of the Season 1 stuff. And one of the things I intend to bring up is how I wish Season 1 had included the stuff that Season 2 includes. All this world-building for the home sector. The neighborhood, right? The, 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 the keep, keep things relatively smaller scale, like within a sector, maybe two. And all of the local races within this sector and how all of them are just kind of going the entire time, right? Like, I've, I've, I know I've talked about this before. The Sengoku Jedi, right? Except in space. So I love this idea. I love the way they're presenting this here. Especially as they mentioned that this, this little planet's only importance is the fact that it happens to be right on the border between these two hostile powers. It's also worth noting, if you're paying attention, I don't think the episode did this on purpose, but I'm willing to at least mention it, that this has been their border for over a hundred years. Why is that important? Because it means the sectors are kind of stagnant, and have been for over a hundred years. Now, why is that important? Well, you could say it's because humanity hasn't shown up yet to show them the way and be awesome and do weird flexes. But I actually have a better answer to that. Well, humanity absolutely does play a role here. I've already explained that role there, the third party. The really interesting thing here is that this really does carry forward that idea of the Sengoku Jedi, the Warring States. 
Nothing moves, nothing changes, everything just kind of sits in the same spot, because no one can really develop. The borders don't change, the technology barely moves forward. The, the attitudes and culture just kind of sits in the same spot, because everyone's like, if you spend all of your time trying to constantly deal with an antagonistic force on effectively all sides, then you don't have a lot of time to do things like think, hmm, I wonder if a printing press would be a good idea. I am being a little bit facetious, but I hope you at least see the idea I'm positing here. Now, this is mostly headcanon, and again, the Trek Rewrite Project is very fresh in my mind. But I like this idea. I like this concept of they've all just been sitting here staring at each other for over a century because of the, because of the scenario they're currently stuck in. And there's only two things that can change that. One is totally random chance, like what actually happened with the Sengoku Jedi. The other is an external power, a third party. In this case, it's more like a 15th party, but you get the idea. Someone new enters the game, and, well, hi, humanity. So, um, and forgive me, by the way, we're going to be talking about politics a lot this one, because there's a lot of political intrigue going on here. So they talk about this, the strategic importance of this dirt ball, and it is utterly unimportant to the Vulcans. There's even a mention, Paul mentioned that this place has been undeveloped and deserted for almost a century. Interesting. If you're paying attention, that means that the Vulcans claimed it just because it was valuable to the Andorians, and they were worried it might be used against them. Now, that's a valid strategy. Resource and asset denial is a very real thing. But again, you'll see how that is a military strategy, a tactical approach to the situation. Once again, adding further further credits to my Sengoku Jedi theory. And you'll notice they automatically presumed that this was being done for strategic reasons by the other side. Which it may have been. We don't know. You'll notice the episode never answers that. It's another good thing in the episode's favor. It never actually says, oh yeah, no, the Andorians were totally innocent. And it also never says, oh yeah, no, the Andorians totally were doing attack of It Who knows? We don't know. I'm not sure how long Andorians live off the top of my head, but either way. We know Vulcans were around during that time. Zafal actually had action here. He actually mentions this at one point in time. So that's neat. So, why now? Why do the Andorians decide to do something now? Well, it could just be random luck. You know, Shran, Shran being who he is, I could certainly see that. I have another theory, and that theory is Romulans. Hear me out for a second. Again, Trek Rewrite Project. But one of the things that I've always kind of headcanoned, and will rewrite canon, is the idea that the Romulans saw the situation. They saw this sector of various spacefaring powers, and they were like, and they were already like, blah, 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 right? So the Romulans didn't make this happen. Instead, they saw the situation and said, oh, we could use that. And so what they're doing is they're doing the smart thing. They're staying back out of the shadows and trying to just, just toss, a, toss a pebble here and there. Just one little provocation. And oh, what this happened. And it's so easy to do. I mean, false flag operations are a very common and prolific thing for a reason. But the idea here being that they could just quietly push one Andorian group or one, or maybe just Shran himself and just kind of encourage, hey, you know. And now we have another spark for a potential continuation of warfare between the Andorians and the Vulcans. Bonus points. This would have probably screwed the Federation over completely. Possibly not to a massive extent, but let's assume war actually started here. What would humanity do? 
What would EarthGov do? Because they would have to do something. There's no Federation. There's humanity. And there's Starfleet. And they would have to take one side or another. And they would have to decide, do we side with our military allies, the Vulcans? Except they're not doing joint operations anymore. So obviously it's not a guaranteed. So do we side with our previous military allies? Or do we side with the Andorians? Or do we stay out of it entirely and lose both? A.K.A. the worst possible option. What do you think they would do? Honest question. <laughs> and you could see how this would completely curtail any possibility of future alliance. Hence, why it would be so illogical that an external force, which is deliberately and indeed um, invested in ensuring that no other powers rise up to contest theirs, would try to actually try to make sure that this exact conflict happened between these two powers, or indeed anyone and the Vulcans, really, in order to ensure that humanity, you know, that, that, that there's no alliance giving. Now, this all makes sense from a macroscopic perspective. When you zoom out, sorry, when you zoom out the camera and where you look at things, it's like, yeah, no, all of this is logical. I want you to pay attention to that, though, and I want you to remember it. While they're discussing, it's interesting how defensive T'Pol gets about defending the Vulcan position, which makes a degree of sense. But, um, and they, they mention a few other things, you know, there's the relocation thing that is mentioned there. Yeah, that's, that's cute. But there's one tiny little tidbit. I know we're talking all politicalizing, but I want to talk about writing for just a moment. One of the things that I tend to really enjoy most is when writing doesn't shove something into your face, which is more rare than it probably should be, but whatever. There's a little tidbit where the, the scene starts and reads, uh, not read, <laughs> Tucker. Tucker's watching and his, his drink's shaking. And he's just like, oh my God. And he looks at it kind of nervous-like. Then he talks out loud and has a bit of a snark with T'Pol about it. I would have ejected that entirely. Not the shake. Keep the shake. Keep him looking at it hesitantly. Give us the exposition dump. Because the exposition dump is well done. It's basically them asking her about the scenario and her defending it, which leads to them being curious about it. And you can see how personal bias kind of gets in the mix. In short, it's a very it's not the perfect exposition, but it's a natural form thereof. I would keep that in. Then, later, when they're waiting for Saval to show up, then Tucker could be pacing and being like, God, I nearly destroyed the reactor trying to get here and they make us wait. Leave that line in. Two pieces, and now we know exactly what's been going on with the ship shaking. If anybody was wondering why the cup was shaking earlier, it is now made presently apparent. And it's not relevant. It's not a big deal. But little polishing passes like that is the kind of thing that I would love to go through as a, as a script editor, basically, on this show. Anyways, so, this then leads to Saval and his, you know, I guess we're going to have to deal with this. What I find amusing is Archer cannot help but rub it in to Saval. As horrible as this sounds, I do think that is the right decision. I, th I think that from a writing perspective, excuse me, Archer's being a dick there. I don't think he's in the right. But I do think that that is the correct portrayal of Archer as a character. One of the things I've complained most about through Season 1, especially Season 1, but also in Season 2, is Archer is right, which irritates the crap out of me. I prefer Archer is in way over his head. That's the take I've always preferred, and we're starting to see that. Um, in previous episodes, it was... Well, it wasn't intentional. We've already talked about that. I've, I've gone over this extensively. I don't need to remake my point. 
But here we're now starting to see bits where actually he actually is in over his head and he is not really the perfect person for this job. It is simply by circumstance that he has a personal connection to the military commander of the opposing side and therefore he happens to be the guy here. And I like that take a lot better than Archer is right and also the hero and also, you know, has sparkling teeth. I don't know what else. <clears throat> You know, it's the 60s things all over again. We, we'll be talking about that in the... T we have been talking about that in the TOS stuff that I recorded almost a year ago that you have been seeing for the last... Uh, just about under a year at this point. <clears throat> so. Then the interesting thing is, Saval is like, okay, I'm going to accept your help on this one. It's an interesting point. I want you to remember that for later. And Archer cannot help but prick Saval's pride. The ball is in your court. And... What I find doubly interesting about that... Actually, sorry, no, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of my notes. I apologize. Rewind. He does prick his pride, though, and so Saval's like, fine, do whatever. This then leads to his discussion with flocks. Two things that jump out at me about that scene. First of all, maybe we're out here to prove we're ready to join the intergalactic community. Um, I guess interstellar is the more accurate terminology. Whatever, the interstellar community, whether Vulcans like it or not. Now, that's a paraphrase. I think I added the word interstellar, but otherwise that's what he says. Can't help but dig at the Vulcans. But it's interesting because that is kind of... Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with that. Exploring's neat, okay? And there's always going to be a value in a weirdness of the week episode. And I, and I stand by that. <laughs> that may sound strange for someone who's been barking on about the fact that we need more continuity in Star Trek for the last nine years. At my timeline, it's going to be ten years by the time you watch this video... For 10 years, I've been barking on about how we need more continuity at Star Trek. But we do, I, th I think there is a legitimate value in those episode of the week episodes where it's not really connected to anything, where maybe there's a little bit of character movement and maybe there's little tiny references to previous episodes. Maybe there's tiny setups for future episodes, but it's mostly just about, hey, we found a weird nebula and it turns everything purple. I, I don't know. You get the idea. Something happens, right? So I'm with that. I'm with the exploration episodes, but I really think that this humanity entering the community thing should have been the primary focus of Enterprise. And again, back in season one. We'll see if this, this theme carries forward, because as I've mentioned, I don't really have particularly strong memories of this part of Enterprise, because this is still now the second time I've watched this stuff. It's one of the reasons why this episode impressed me so much. I barely remembered this one. Anywho... The other thing that he mentions, though, is Phlox mentions his military career, how he used to you know, be a, be a uh, Gropo. And I find myself wondering, man, do we ever get that story? <laughs> like, there's a story to be told there. The doctor who used to be part of the ground-based infantry. Anyways, just moving on. <clears throat> now, this is another neat little character scene. There's a bit where Archer and T'Pol are in the shuttle pod. Now... I've been complaining about Scott Bakula's acting the entire time, and I stand by that, to be clear. Not that he's a bad actor, but that he has been acting badly. I do blame a large number of sources, and we've covered this before, but I mention this because this scene where he's discussing this thing with, with DePaul is actually pretty well acted, on both of their parts, actually. Both of them do a good job of it. On the one hand, she is very nervous. You can tell, just by the way she is prompting by the way she is insistent, by the way she has effectively put herself out on the... she, As the episode later shows, forgive me for jumping ahead here, she is effectively on the chopping block here, too. She has vouched 
not just for humanity in general, which she has politically, but she has also vouched for Archer personally. And that's come up multiple times in multiple previous episodes and is directly referenced in this episode. So she's got that, and she wants to be proven right. You know, I, I want you to have a chance to prove Saval wrong. But then there's the fact that this is a tense situation, which she recognizes, and she probably doesn't actually want a war. Frankly, I think most people involved in this situation don't actually want war. This isn't the Dominion, you know? This, this is a situation where they're probably, like, in an ideal world, both sides would be like, yeah, can we just do this? Can we can we just peace out? Hang on, where's, where's my glasses? I always keep these right here. It's just I, I feel like there's plenty of people on both sides that just want to look at each other and be like, you know, hey, hey, are we cool? Are we cool? And the other side's like, yeah, we're cool. We're cool. Okay. And then they, they they just go home and they deal with their problems. Obviously, there are exceptions. We'll cover that in a moment. But I mention all this because her nervousness is great, but his nervousness plays beautifully off of her nervousness. In fact, I'm pretty sure both of them are making each other more nervous as they're sitting there and discussing. Because, well, I mean, duh, right? It's like, oh, God, okay, so we need... Um, you, 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 you read the treaties, right? I sent the thing to you. I, 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 you know, I glanced. I perused. You glanced at it. And there's just this moment of exasperation that's just barely, you, you glanced at it. It was 1,200 pages! What's beautiful about this scene, though, is that it could be played off as a typical sitcom moment, which tends to irritate me when Trek does that. But it's not. Instead, what we see is Archer, she starts saying, I sent you all this paperwork and all this stuff, and he's like, yeah, I know. And I got this, and I got this, and I got this. And I stayed up until 2 a.m. last night reading. Now, that's interesting. It shows how nervous he is. It shows how he is taking this seriously. It shows how out of depth he is, how in over his head he is here. Interesting. Good character stuff, good character stuff. So having done his homework, he goes down. And there's several bits. So they're sneaking through the ruins. And a couple of times, one time in particular jumps out at me mentally, you see just an Endorian rush by in the background. How does T'Pol not hear them? Now, okay. We're going to branch here for a second. On the one branch, it's because television and nobody thought about it. Okay, there's the answer. But then I got to thinking... The Andorians have been fighting intermittently the Vulcans for over a century. Sound dampening technology exists in real life. Wouldn't it be interesting if certain members of Andorian commandos literally had sound dampening tech on them to make it so that they didn't make as much sound so that the Vulcans couldn't hear them coming? Obviously, this will never be a thing ever again, and I'm basically just making this up off the fly because, you know, headcanon, but interesting to think about. <clears throat> now, there's this nice tidbit here. There's this bit. Uh, this really does help show how Archer is kind of more on the right track with this episode. Because he sits down after people hold him at gunpoint. He's unarmed. And then put a bag over his head and shove him down in the middle of a dirty and dark room on a, ta on a table looking up at people who are all armed and trying to negotiate a hostage situation in the grime and the muck and yada yada. This is, once again, where presentation comes in, because this exact same scene would still play basically the same in the, the school play perspective, but it would lack so much impact if you didn't see what the characters were seeing, right? 
because we see this, we now understand the, you know his take and that feel. I mean, you know what that feels like, right? I always envisioned my first such and such would be this big deal, and of course it's not. But at the same time, that's very historically accurate, isn't it? The actual deals and treaties and whatnot, oh sure, there's ceremony. But that's for the public. That's for show. That's pomp and circumstance. A lot of real-life historical treaties are made by dirty, sweaty, mud-raked, sometimes blood-coated people who sat down, or sometimes didn't sit at all, and hashed some crap out. Like, okay, we'll actually have the treaty signing three days from now, and that's when we'll do the pomp and circumstance, right? It's interesting to think about. And, of course, uh, this then leads to Shran's thing. And so he's... So there's some good stuff there. Uh, we automatically see who the bad guy is because it's played by the only other actual guest star here, Susie Plaxon. She does a good job with the role. I don't want to make fun of that. But it's like, oh, okay, so she's the bad guy for the episode. Got it. Because it's not Shran. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is she does do a surprisingly good job of portraying someone who is so blasé about how she's betraying you. There's no, there's no sign of it, really, other than the fact that she simply overtly disagrees with you. No, you're dumb. We should fight back and kill. And die for our masters, the Romulan. Maybe she's the Romulan agent. Or maybe an Romulan just got in her ear, put a bug there. Not literally, although, knowing the Romulans. And, you know, just kind of got that thought in there, so it just kind of starts processing. Maybe we should be fighting for our rights as Andorians. We should never we should never have walked away from that planet. It was our planet! How many generations ago was that? Doesn't matter! So, <clears throat> there's this nice tidbit, though. He says he wants to sit down with... Uh, he mentions how negotiations can stretch on for years, and he wants someone who can make a decision. Again, yeah. Once once you get to the paperwork side of things, yeah, that's that, that that's pretty accurate. But it's interesting how he wants to cut through that uh, by deliberate action because there's a lot of logic to that. Funnily enough, something I think the Vulcans should appreciate. I want someone who can make a decision, who has the authority to make a decision. I want you. You don't. If you go to a McDonald's and you complain to the person on the register that you need a change made for that McDonald's. Good freaking luck, right? It might get up the chain and they might mention it. And the manager might actually give a damn and might actually manage it to the general manager who might manage it to the district manager. Or you want to talk to the district manager directly. Of course, the hard part there is getting a hold of the district manager because there's literally people in whose job it is to prevent you from interacting with them. This is not only speaking from personal and professional experience, but simple historical perspective. Interestingly enough, though, Saval is here, so the possibility exists for a direct contact, and Saval is someone high-ranking enough to be able to make some kind of decisions. Okay, I'm with it. This then leads to a nice little tidbit. Um, you know, so he's like, you have to give something back. You have to do a gesture of goodwill. Okay, take a hostage back. Excuse me, excuse me, a prisoner. Prisoner. Military conflict. This then leads to... Probably the most amusing political comment this episode has. I don't mean political as in controversial. I mean political as in political intrigue. You know, the, the politics, the war, and the, the infighting, all that fun stuff. Um, Saval mentions, I can't go negotiate with these people. It would give them legitimacy. That says so much about the Vulcan position right there. 
In fact, I wouldn't, I would not be surprised if those are not his words, that those are the high command's words coming out of his mouth. The idea that, you know, this is a situation in which we are denying political capital to our enemy by refusing to treat them as a nation, as a state, and instead insisting that their actions are more um, unsubstantiated, denying them the legitimacy necessary in order to, you know, be capable of operating and potentially pulling in any other factions, any other sides on their side. Not a bad strategy, actually. Pretty terrible when you think about it, but politically not a bad strategy. Anywho, <clears throat> so Archer convinces Soval to go down. This is where I, I screwed up earlier. By pricking his pride. That's the second time, by the way. Interesting detail. A nice little tidbit. Good writing. There's this bit where he says, the ball's in your court. And Soval just has a moment of... And T'Pol jumps in. Oh, it, it means it is your move. And Soval's like, ah. Very minor touch, but I like those tiny little touches there. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. And it's it's good stuff for T'Pol, showing how acclimated she has come to the situation. It's good stuff for Soval and Vulcans in general. And it's good stuff for Artric, because that is kind of how he tends to swing. So, Okay. Ugh, this is where I made a note in my notes. I've already talked about how they had separate engineers to move the, the antenna, and they had written up, like, this emotion should be this, and this emotion should be that. This is probably the first time I really noticed the antenna stuff, though. I mean, it's been there before. I even commented on it before. But I really I really like, especially with Miss Plaxon's character, I don't remember her name, Tara, I think. She does a really good job, because she'll do this thing where her face will go flat, and she's effectively throwing on a poker face. But as she's doing it, her antenna move. And you can feel her emotion from that. It's a nice little tidbit. And it's, well, we all make fun. Well, some of us make fun of Star Trek for being humans with makeup, right? This is a nice way to show to the audience an alien way of characterization in a way that isn't so alien as to be ridiculous and, you know, Ununderstandable. It's 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 a surprisingly intelligent thing that I am totally with. It's the kind of thing you could do with like any kind of uh, additional. Uh, what's the word? I want to say adhesive, but that's the wrong word. Additional appendage or whatever, like a tail for something. You could use that as a way to continue to characterize or present what someone's thinking or feeling. Right? Just cool stuff like that. I love it. Interesting point. The Andorians and the Vulcans both adhere to all X R Y. Did you catch that? Now, both sides tend to be like, all oh, Vulcans are blah. And both, on all the Andorians, or excuse me, all the Vulcans tend to be like, all Andorians are blah. This is where I mentioned, you know, the, the main theme of this work. Oh, it's about trust, sure. But that's the obvious theme. The more interesting theme is the individual versus the group. The microscopic versus the macroscopic. Because, well... The sides involved have plenty of valid reasons to go to war, and frankly, honestly, probably should have under these circumstances. But one person reached out to one person, reached out to one person. Shran reached out to Archer. Archer insisted on to Paul. And then we see how these individual people reach out to each other, but we add two more individuals to this mix. One is Soval, who is hesitant, but nevertheless is willing to be receptive since he is a person when he is dealing with people. When he sees for himself the individuals involved, he's more willing to talk and work. Not a lot, but he does budge, as I mentioned earlier. 
Shran, ugh. But when he actually sees a wounded Vulcan in front of him and realizes the circumstances present, the individual... What I'm trying to say here, and this is so easy to understand, I'm sure you understand this without me even explaining it, we respond better to a person than to a people. If you see an individual reaches out a hand to you and says, hey, let's hash this out, then you are more likely to respond positively towards that, or at least in a manner that you are willing to hear them out, than if you get a message that says, the such and such have decided that they wish to negotiate for the release of their hostages. The distance there, I've talked about this so many times, the distance changes the equation in how we think and function. And it's interesting to see that individuals are what make all of this happen. I mentioned one other individual, which I haven't mentioned yet. That's, of course, Susie Flaxen's character. One person and her individual actions nearly threw this all into, in, into chaos. Like I said, she's the bad guy of the episode. It is interesting, ergo, however, that Archer flat out states, no. The false flag operation fails, not because he trusts the Andorians, not because he thinks that, that particularly fondly of the species or the organization or the military unit, but because there's one person he knows personally, Shran. He even flat out references, this is the guy who couldn't sleep because he thought he owed me a favor. He's not going to try and kill me just to set a trap for you, dude. This isn't, no. Because he knows the individual fascinating to think about i think I, i'm sorry I, I just, I, this, this episode got me really going i do apologize and there's also a nice little tidbit this is the value of continuity right here by the way as much as i banged on earlier about not doing continuity i know this man from archer and i've seen what your vulcan commandos can do so i'm not going to let you that's actually from tucker up on the enterprise the value this this really does show that value of continuity Setup, payoff. None of this would matter any anywhere near as much if this was an episode when none of those previous events happened. That's just how that works. It continues to amuse me how pro-continuity Enterprise continues to be, even before we get to Season 3. And this again makes my point of how continuity does not need to be string continuity. It doesn't have to be one cohesive arc across several episodes. It can be, Season 3. It doesn't have to be. Anyways... I've banged on about that drum way too many times. Let's move on to talk about how Hoshi is in this episode. Okay, so moving on. I'm sorry, I'm joking, obviously. But you got Hoshi, and she scans a thing, and she has two lines of dialogue, and that's it. Give her something to do. Have her be the one to find them. She She's the one who has the skilled ear necessary to be able to figure out whose signals are from which species or speaking in which language down there so she can kind of listen through the, the haze of it and be like, okay, and, and start to give updates to Tucker or something. Make her relevant other than just someone who reads off a monitor. In the Trek Rewrite Project, she's going to be getting more to do, I'm just saying. At least I hope she is. You'll be seeing this a year from now, so we'll see if I followed through on that. Anyways. <clears throat> so... This then leads to Saval snarking about how, you know, Archer is lost. And Archer then responds by pricking his pride. Third time that's happened now. Saval then immediately responds by giving him help and assistance. That's the third time Saval has had his pride pricked. Now, again, this is not me complaining. Because each time he is folded to prove that he is as good as he says he is, to prove that his pride is well-founded, because Vulcans are very prideful. I'm not even making fun by that. 
that's how that is. And that is definitively how that's being shown in this show. So I like how Archer, probably unintentionally, is, is jabbing at that. This then leads to T'Pol and Saval's interaction. Probably the only reason why she's down here, to be completely honest, is the this scene between T'Pol and Saval. Boy, I say that five times fast. She jokes. She makes a joke about the ears. Now, Vulcan humor is amusing in its own right, but what really kind of grinds my gears on this one is the moment after she makes this very, very minor, very Vulcan joke, he immediately says, did you know you have a human accent now? In a very insulting tone. Like, it is clearly intended as an insult. You're starting to have a human accent. And then he basically slams her. Slams her choices and slams her career decisions and says, you're an idiot and you're dumb. What's doubly interesting is he accuses her of both arrogance, remember the pride thing, and satisfaction. Accuses her of these two horrific emotions, which aren't really emotions, to be blunt. We've talked about what is an emotion and what isn't over the TNG run, because it came up a lot when it came to Data. Data himself, and my personal favorite is he can find satisfaction from things and a degree of appreciation for something without being emotional because it's it, it's not an emotional reaction. And yet he uses both of these and says they're emotional in order to put her on the defensive, and it works because she then defends herself. I have not been, uh, what's the word? Uh, I've not been contaminated by human emotions just because I respect them. She ha and, and this is a common argument tactic. I see it all the time on the internet, but especially nowadays. Rather than actually making a point, what he does is he puts her on the defensive. And she falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. Interesting. Meanwhile, we see that tactical alert from Reed. Continuity. And Enterprise literally gets between the two enemy ships. Okay, getting a little obvious there. <laughs> little on the nose. But what I do find amusing about this... Uh, so, what would happen if Enterprise fired on either? Both sides say, stay out of this. They're both on reasonably friendly terms with, with EarthGov. And that's interesting to think about, because it means that, again, looking at this from a political lens, we have two hostile powers who are willing to start fighting each other, which will probably be a provocative act of war, and another force they want to not be involved, who is insisting on being willing to fire on both of them. Now, let's assume that happened. Let's assume Tucker fired on the Vulcans and the Andorians. What happens in that situation? Because, to go back to the Sengoku Jedi, we did have situations where three powers were all fighting each other simultaneously. No, no alliances, just... You see why I think the Romulans might have been kind of pushing some pebbles on this one. It's also interesting to think about, because Starfleet might have disavowed that, might have crucified uh, Tucker and put it on him, but maybe they wouldn't have the political capital to do that. After all, maybe the captain of their big NX ship in the, in the middle of a tense situation when specifically asked they're on a diplomatic function is serving as a function of the state. If you remember, I've been talking about this all the time with regards to Enterprise Season 1 and 2. And so maybe that is an act of the state, and therefore the state legally, diplomatically, politically has taken this action. So there's no walking that one back. 
What's interesting about that to me is that Tucker is not the captain. Archer is. Does that still apply if it's Tucker? Could we have some shenanigans to get around that? So the Andorian guns don't have a stun setting. Huh. I, I That's interesting to think about. I suppose we have a bit of a parallel on that in real life, but that is interesting to think about. They don't even have a stun setting. This is also when I noticed that uh, Susie Plaxon's character was wearing heels. I hate to bang on about this, but this woman is in a combat scenario and is a military operative who is an infantryman, who is someone who is in the middle of a fight, a firefight, and a fight with someone else, and she's wearing... I'm just saying, I feel a little Burmanese getting in there. That's, that's all. Just wanted to point that out. Anywho, so Archer wins a fight. I think this might be the first time he wins a fight. And then there's the antennae thing again. God, it's so brilliant, this, the way they, they use that. I just I want to speak. And once again, though, and I've already said this. I've already made this point. Once again, actions, individuals. One person makes a call because they saw one other person, and they saw the actions that one person takes. And thus, one person who has the authority to make the decision goes ahead and pushes that decision forward, which is also interesting because that's also happened in real life history, where one person reacted positively to one person and both of them happened to have the authority to do something about that. If that person at the cashier at McDonald's really vibes with you and understands and appreciates you and agrees with you, it may or may not matter. But if the district manager comes down and happens to vibe and agree with you, then things are probably going to get done. So hey, Archer gets his wish. A table, champagne, and mutual dissatisfaction. Credit to the episode. Everything isn't wrapped up with a neat bow. And this is the final reason why this episode really shines for me. I was expecting a pat TV ending and just everything solved forever. Woo. Instead, what happens is war is averted. A ceasefire is signed. Not a treaty, not a peace treaty, not an actual agreement, just a ceasefire is signed. And we will continue negotiations later on Andoria. The implication of shared negotiations across mutual territories in order to ensure cooperation, which is a great third step or so. That's good. That's intelligent. That's adult. That's 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 proper storytelling. What what show am I watching here? Did this suddenly become Place Nine? I liked this episode, if it's not obvious. This was a good one. I hope you enjoyed my thoughts. I'm looking forward to your comments down below. I will see you next time.